Hi, my name is Akash. I'm the director of student ministries at the East Lexington campus, and we're here to answer some questions about God today. Let's get started. Why does God have so many names? That's a good one. I think a lot of the names come from different people trying to like add their own interpretation of it and like what they need the most. I have a lot of nicknames because my name is so weird. And part of that is I think like people have different relationships. So like some might say like, oh, Godfather, but some people want to get say like creator or protector or whatever they need at that moment. So I think it's kind of like for you to like reach out to a specific part of God. All right, next question. Why does God need a space starship? I think that the question is like, does God need a starship? But if I were God, my starship would have like a really sweet juice bar because I feel like as I'm cruising through the galaxies, I just want like some really nice smoothies. So that's probably like all the amenities, you know? Why does God like the smell of burnt offerings? I was always confused with this too, but then I thought about like the process of like while it's burning, while I'm like making my food that's burning, you have like Italian food that you're cooking and there's like all the garlic and the onion and it's like, yes, this smells amazing. And I think that it's like that process of like, oh, this smells really good. I think that's like, I don't know, if I was God, that's why I'd want it. I hope that it's like really well seasoned burnt offering, you know? Next question. Why does God ask questions? I mean, I ask a lot of questions of the answers too, but I feel like I want to hear someone else say it too, so like we're on the same page. I feel like God asks a question to go like, hey, I know the answer to this, but do you know the answer to this? So, yeah, I think it's because he wants to hear you say it. All right, last one. Why does God hate me? Um, I don't feel like I have a really quick and easy answer to that one. So, Pastor Brian, can you help us out? Well, hey, Grace Chapel. Great to be with you all today on this Super Sunday. You do know it's Super Sunday, right? I mean, it's the last I'll say about that, okay? Hey, we'll get to this tough question in just a moment, but let me just share a couple thoughts about some of the upcoming months. Uh, let me first point out that uh, today on this first Sunday in February, we're about halfway through our church ministry year. And it's really been a great year so far. We've gotten some wonderful feedback on our teaching series, each of them. If you remember experiencing God back in the fall and then follow the wonder for Advent and now this Googling God series has stirred up a lot of conversation and interaction. So that's been wonderful to see. Our, our children's ministry and our student ministry that we care so much about, they're just flourishing. Lots of new kids and new families. Uh, maybe you heard we had more uh, middle and high school students on retreat last weekend than ever before. Nearly 300 people were away on that weekend and had some great times of connection and learning and worship and all of that. And on top of that, we just have lots of new folks around here, new members, new volunteers, new groups. So it's really been a wonderful year, and we're grateful to God and, and for all of you, to all of you for being a part of that. On a more personal note, the elders have just approved for me a month of sabbatical this winter. Now, it's been about 10 years or so since I've taken some time like that for some focused spiritual renewal, and it just feels like a good time to do that. Now, we're beginning to set our sights on what's next for grace and feel that the Lord's putting a fresh vision on our hearts for the days to come. So I'd like a month just to think and pray and read and study and visit some churches and talk to some leaders, as, get some clarity around where the Lord is leading us as we look to the future. So I'll be doing that beginning middle of February and a week of vacation and then four weeks. I'll be back towards the end of March 
just in time for Holy Week and Easter. So that's what's going to be happening. Now, in the meantime, you're going to be in good hands, all right? No worries. This next season, we've already talked about this BLESS series that we'll be doing during the, during the season of Lent. We're going to be learning from Jesus how to extend grace to the people in our everyday lives. So Pastor Tom Van Antwerp will be leading us through that series along with the rest of the teaching team. Uh, it's going to be a great series. We're also building some group study guides to go with that. So we're hoping that many of our groups will also be a part of the journey. We're actually going to be starting a bunch of new groups, five-week groups, to be a part of that series. So if you're not in a group or you've thought about trying it, this would be a great time to do that uh, for this series coming up in Lent. So lots to look forward to, lots to be thankful for, and I don't want to miss a chance just to let you know how very grateful I am to be serving the Lord here at Grace with all of you, how excited I am about the days to come. So enough touchy-feely stuff. Let's get to our question for the week, all right? Why does God hate me? Now, as I said at the beginning, this one caught us by surprise. It turns out to be the third most often Googled question or some variation of it about God. The first two we kind of expected, who made God and uh, why so much pain and suffering. But this third one, why does God hate me? Why would anyone even think that? According to one source, that question or some variation of it is asked about 100 times a day on Google. So this question was not on our original teaching plan for this series. But when we realized how many people are asking it, and when I just kind of mentioned it in a message, and many of you commented on it, we felt like we better add a week to the series and speak to this question. So that's what we're doing today. And as it turns out, it's kind of a natural follow-up to last week's message. Is God angry, sexist, racist? That was a kind of an academic, philosophical discussion. This week, we come to the more personal side of that question. Is God angry with me? Does God have something against me? Could it be that God hates me? Now, hate is a strong word. Dictionary tells us that hate is an intense or passionate dislike, a strong aversion to someone or something. Hate is the word we used, that's how we feel about traffic, and about homework, about cauliflower, and certain sports teams. <laughs> Our parents taught us not to hate anyone, hopefully. We put signs up in our town centers, no place for hate. Pop culture vilifies the haters who got to hate, 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 hate. So why would anyone think that God hates anyone, let alone them? But it turns out, it's a question a lot of people ask. Now, it could be because the Bible, the word hate actually appears in the Bible a handful of times, so we should probably look at a few of them. The book of Proverbs tells us, chapter 6, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, and feet that are quick to rush to evil 
a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up dissension. Like we said, hate is a strong word. But don't we want God to hate these things? Evil, and violence, and lies? Don't we hate those things? Don't we want them to stop? And let's remember, these are behaviors God hates, not people. We learned last week, God didn't hate the Canaanites. He hated what the Canaanites were doing to their own people and to the world around them. Now, there is one rather conspicuous reference to God hating a person, and so we should probably look at it because it shows up twice. In his letter to the church in Rome, the apostle Paul is quoting the prophet Malachi from years back, who wrote, Jacob I have loved, referring to God, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. That doesn't sound very nice, does it? It doesn't really sound like God, does it? That's because it's a figure of speech. The, the prophet is using hyperbole, exaggeration to make a point. It's not meant to be taken literally, just like you don't mean it literally when you say you hate the Yankees. I mean, I know. <laughs> Bad example. Paul is simply emphasizing, or the prophet is simply emphasizing, that God decisively chose one rather than the other. But he's not talking about how he feels about them. In fact, in that very same passage, the prophet makes clear that God's choice has nothing to do with how lovable they are or how noble either one of them were because he chose them before they were even born. So we learned last week that whenever we come to a difficult text in the Scripture, an isolated text like this, we always want to interpret it in light of the clear and repeated texts of Scripture, what we call the timeless truths of Scripture. And one of those timeless truths from beginning to end is that God is love. John tells us most plainly in, in his first letter, chapter 4, God is love. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. And so clearly, there is no room in God's heart for hate and no room for hate among God's people. So that brings us back to our question, well, why then would anyone think that God might hate them? I got to thinking about that, and as I pondered it for a bit, I came up with at least three reasons a person might begin to think that God could hate them. So we'll come back and look at each one in a minute, but let me just kind of list them for you. First, first of all, a person who has been treated hatefully by other people, by important people, by powerful people, might come to the conclusion that God must hate them too. That's one possibility. Secondly, uh, if a person has experienced a lot of bad things in life, heartache, tragedy, disappointment, they might come to the conclusion that 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 God must not like them very much to have let all these bad things happen to them. A third possibility is that a person might be feeling guilty or shameful for something they've done or failed to do, or maybe for something that's been done to them. So they're having a hard time believing that God could love them after what they've done or what's been done. So those three struck me as reasons a person might ask, why does God hate me? 
But remember, this is a very personal question. So before we go any further, I want to acknowledge the possibility that maybe some of these things have happened to you. Maybe people have treated you badly. Maybe a lot of bad things have happened in your life. Maybe you're carrying around with you the guilt or burden of having done something wrong or someone done something to you. And, and you find yourself, even today, wondering how God feels about you. Or maybe that's true of someone you know and love. So let's consider, let's think about these three and see if the Bible has anything to say about them. Let's consider that first one. If a person has experienced hate or mistreatment by important people in their lives, or even by people who are supposed to represent God in their lives, they might come to the conclusion that, that God must hate them too. We, we, we know how formative early life experiences are. And we know how powerful and shaping, imprinting, traumatic, even violent experiences can be. And since we can't see God, our, our image of God is often formed by the important people around us, by our families, people who raise us, and by people who represent God to us, church leaders, Christian people. And if, if those relationships are characterized by, by dislike, by mistreatment, a person might conclude that God must not like them very much either. Well, do we meet anyone in the Bible like that? Someone who's been treated badly by a lot of people. Turns out we meet quite a few people like that, but one of them came to my mind. A woman named Hagar, who we meet in the Old Testament book of Genesis. If you remember the story, Abraham and Sarah have been promised many descendants, a whole nation full of descendants. But after many, many years, and as they get into their old age, there are no children at all. So Abraham and Sarah decide together, without God's direction, that Abraham should have a child through Hagar, Sarah's maidservant. So they do. Right from the beginning, it turns out to be a really bad idea. The moment that Hagar becomes pregnant, there is rivalry between these two women. Sarah blames the whole thing on Abraham. Abraham washes his hands of the problem and tells Sarah to, to do whatever he wants with Hagar. Way to go, Abraham. <laughs> then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. So here you have this woman who likely has been a servant or a slave for her entire life, being exploited again in all kinds of awful ways, and now being treated so badly that she has to run for her life. And by the way, the people who've treated her like that are people who supposedly have been chosen by God. And so based on how people have treated her, God's people in particular, you can't blame Hagar for feeling that God must hate her too. And so she runs. But to her surprise... God finds her in the desert, sends an angel to speak to her, an angel who promises that God will provide for her, protect her, and will bless her with many, many descendants. At the end of that little encounter, we read, Hagar gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. 
You are the God who sees me, for I have now seen the one who sees me. And so this exploited, mistreated, abandoned woman discovered that God not only doesn't hate her, he's actually out looking for her. He's not against her, he's for her. And it could be that you or someone you know is feeling like this, exploited, abandoned, rejected. It could be that that mistreatment came even at the hands of of people who are supposed to have loved you or people who are supposed to represent God in your life. It's interesting that many of the people who ask this question, why does God hate me, are people who have likely experienced a lot of hateful treatment from other people. The LGBT community, for instance. People of color. People with different abilities who have been overlooked or discriminated against or treated badly. Sometimes by people who are supposed to represent God. So if that should describe you or someone you know, understand that that God sees you. He sees them. He not only sees you, he, he loves you. He has a plan for you. Don't, don't mistake the words and actions of fallen people for the words and actions of a loving God. I want to say that again. Don't mistake the words and actions of fallen people for the words and actions of a loving God. I came across a story of a, a man named Eugene. Uh, Eugene grew up in a, in a Christian home. He had a very loving, attentive mother, but a harsh and abusive father. An ordained minister, but a harsh and abusive father who told him many times that God hated him. And so Eugene grew up thinking that God wanted nothing to do with him. And so as he came into adulthood, he decided he wanted nothing to do with God. Became an atheist. Walked away from faith and from church. Adult life didn't turn out to be any better than childhood had been. And so he began to wonder why God didn't just let him die and send him to hell and get the whole thing over with. It's a long story, but it took many, many years, many, many conversations, many relationships with many different Christian people and communities until he finally began to understand that God didn't hate him, but in fact loved him and had been watching and had a purpose for him. And he has since found his way back to faith back to church and hosts a national podcast and blog that he calls Recovering Faith, designed to help people find their way back to God. So if you or someone you know should be wondering how God feels about you, if God loves you, know this. God, the God who saw Hagar, the God who saw Eugene, sees you and loves you and has a purpose for your life because God is love. A second reason a person might think God hates them might have to do with the bad things that have happened to them. Tragedy, disappointment, illness, all financial setbacks. I mean, we wouldn't wish those things on anybody, especially on someone that we loved. So if an all-powerful God has let these things happen to us, to me, he must not love me very much. In fact, he might even hate me. 
Maybe that's been your story, a story of someone you know. So many bad things or such unusually bad things. It's not hard to begin to wonder if God really loves you very much at all. Is there anybody in the Bible like that? Anybody who's experienced a lot of bad things? Actually, there's quite a few. But the one that came to my mind was a a woman named Naomi. We find her story in the Old Testament book of Ruth. Naomi's life had been going pretty well, actually. She had a husband, two strapping young sons, and they were living in a comfortable small town in Judea. But suddenly, famine struck the land, and so they had to leave their comfortable town and home, flee, migrate to the country of Moab, Moab, and go search for some food. No sooner had they arrived in Moab than Naomi's husband suddenly died, leaving her sad and vulnerable without a husband to to give her status and protection. Now, fortunately, she still had two fine young sons who married Moabite women so they could provide protection and provision for her as well as a legacy, grandchildren, to carry on the family name. But then, just as tragically and just as suddenly, both of those sons died. So now she's lost the three most important people in her life. She has no one to protect her or give her status in society. No livelihood and no hope of a lineage of someone to carry on the family name. And then after all of that, one of those two daughters-in-law leaves her. So by the time Naomi finds her way back to that small town in Judea and is greeted by the townsfolk, she says to them, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, she told them. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. And you can't blame her. I mean, how many bad things can happen to one person? And it could be. A lot of bad things have happened to you or to someone that you love, things you wouldn't wish on anybody. But they've happened. And so you wonder, does God love you? Does God love them? But as we learned last week, You can't always know what God is like until the story is over, until we come to see how things actually end. And in Naomi's case, the story wasn't over when she arrived back in Judea empty-handed and broken-hearted. She very quickly discovered that God had provided her with a daughter-in-law who was faithful, loyal, and capable, named Ruth. And God would quickly provide for Ruth not only a job, but a husband. And not just any husband, a good and godly husband who would provide and protect for all of them and grant to them a legacy, beginning with a child, a grandson named Obed. And so Naomi's story ends with her bouncing that little grandson on her knee. A grandson who will become the ancestor of a man named David and the ancestor of another child who would many years later be born in that little town of Bethlehem. So if you or someone you love begin to wonder if God loves you because of all the bad things that have happened, consider the possibility that the story isn't over yet. 
that God can and will do something good for you and through you if you let him. But even if the, the important people in your life have loved you well, even if a lot of bad things haven't happened to you, there's a third reason you might wonder sometimes if God hates you. It could be you're feeling guilty for something you've done wrong or something you have failed to do or maybe something wrong that's been done to you. And when we're involved and complicit in something wrong, we, we feel guilty, we feel shamed, we feel unlovable. Speaking of Google, have you seen the Google commercial for the dog who gets in trouble with his owner? We see the living room floor littered with wrappers and the dog hiding in a corner. <laughs> Cooper, did you eat all your treats? The owner says. We know the feeling. Not unlike Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes after eating from that tree in the garden. When we've done something wrong, when we have something wrong done to us, it's easy to feel as though nobody really wants us around, including God. Is there anyone in the Bible like that who's done something wrong? Yeah, pretty much everybody in the Bible has done something wrong. But the one that came to my mind was that big-hearted fisherman named Peter. For three years, he follows Jesus around on the inside circle of the 12 disciples. Jesus affirms him. Jesus blesses him. Jesus empowers him. But in the moment when Jesus needs Peter, in the moment of his greatest trial, Peter denies him. Even after Jesus warned him it was coming, even after Peter promised he would never do such a thing, he does it anyway, not once, not twice, but three times. In earshot of Jesus. And, and when what he's done hits him, the Bible says he disappears into the shadows and weeps bitterly. And we know that feeling, don't we? Because we've all let God down. We've all let ourselves down. And when we do that, it, it feels terrible. We feel unworthy. We feel unlovable. And when I say all of us, I mean all of us. Just last week, Karen and I got to see that recent film, The Two Popes. It tells the backstory, kind of behind the scenes look at the transfer of power from Pope Benedict to Pope Francis. And from everything I've been able to read, it's a pretty accurate portrayal of those leaders and, and what happened. In one very powerful and intimate scene, the two popes are talking privately. And in the course of their conversation, they come face to face with their failures and their sins. For Benedict, it was his complicity in the church's failure to protect children 
from abusive priests. And in Francis' case, it was his failure to protect some of the priests under his care, two of whom were actually back in Argentina, two of whom were were arrested, imprisoned, and tortured because he failed to speak up for them and to stand with them. And so we're, we're watching two of the most devout, most disciplined, most God-fearing people on the planet come face to face with their sins and failures, which are great, and which leave them feeling not only unworthy, but distant from the very God they're supposed to serve and represent. And if it could happen to them, what of the rest of us? There's not a one of us who hasn't felt like that, like we should go hide in a corner somewhere because of what we've done or failed to do or because what someone else has done to us. We don't even want to be with ourselves, let alone feel as though God might want to be with us. And that's how Peter must have felt after his epic failure. Even after the resurrection, in those strange and mysterious days when Jesus appears and disappears from the disciples' lives, and they're wondering where they stand with him and if their career as disciples has come to an end. One one night, after a night of fishing, they come back to shore, and and they come back empty-netted and empty-hearted, perhaps, and they find Jesus waiting for them on shore. And he has breakfast prepared for them. And after serving them breakfast, he invites Peter to go for a little walk. And as they walk, Jesus invites Peter to reaffirm his love for him. Not once, not twice, but three times. And when that's all done, he he looks at Peter. And he speaks the words that, above all words, Peter needed to hear. Follow me. Jesus doesn't need to say it, but Peter knows it. He's forgiven, and he's loved. And so are you, and so am I, and so is everyone who brings their sins and failures to Jesus. The things that leave us feeling guilty and ashamed and unlovable, and when we bring them to him, he forgives us for them, every one of them. And he calls us again out of the corner, out of the shadows, and into the light of his love and his purposes. So it turns out to be not such a crazy question after all. Why does God hate me? It's a question any one of us might ask for any number of reasons. Maybe because people have treated us hatefully. Maybe because a lot of bad things have happened to us. Maybe because we've done some things or had things done to us that that feel very wrong. But as we've learned today, these things are not the end of the story. The God who saw Hagar sees you too. Sees you right now, right where you are, wherever you're sitting, any one of our venues. Sees you at home in your living room, listening online in the car or, or, or at the gym sees you maybe even if you're hiding, hiding in the back row. 
hiding behind your busyness or your success or your carefully curated Instagram posts. He sees you and he loves you and, and he calls you to come out from wherever it is you're hiding. And the, the God who traveled with Naomi from Judea to Moab and back to Judea again, who provided for her, wants to provide for you too. He travels with you. And he wants to provide for you relationships, family, friendship, livelihood, work, meaning, purpose. The God who forgave Peter for his threefold failure can forgive you too and restore you and call you again to follow him out of your corner and into the light of his love and purposes. Got to thinking about Jesus' final night with his disciples, gathered around a table for dinner before he went to the cross. Here he is sitting with 12 people, 12 guys he called from out of nowhere, 12 guys he blessed and affirmed and empowered and developed into leaders. 12 guys he'd given three years of his life to. And sitting there looking at them around the table that night, he knows that every one of them that night will fail him. The whole sorry lot of them will run for cover in the garden, hiding in the bushes when the guards come to arrest him. One of them will betray him for a fistful of cash. And another, the one he has invested in most deeply, perhaps, will deny him three times. Jesus has every reason not to like those guys, to be done with them. But what does he do? He washes their feet, every one of them. He breaks bread with them, every one of them. And then he looks them all in the eye and he says to them, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down one's life for his friends. And the next day, he went to the cross and he showed them how very much he loved them. And not just them, the whole sorry lot of us. He showed the world so that there should never be any doubt in anyone's mind about how God feels about them, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done or failed to do, no matter where they are, no matter how far they've wandered or how long they've been away, no matter what, God loves you. And there is no asterisk with that statement. And so today, Jesus invites us to that very same table, invites us to come out of our hiding places and receive again that love and forgiveness and restoration to join him again as we go out into the world. And so as we receive communion today on all of our campuses, we're going to invite you to come forward to receive communion, to, to come out of your hiding places. And as you come forward, we're going to invite you to say to the server, my name is Brian, so that they can say back to you, God loves you, Brian, or whoever you are. Now, if you're not comfortable saying your name, you don't have to. God loves you anyway, <laughs> and they'll tell you anyway. 
But we would love for you to hear it personally, especially if one of these three things has you wondering how God feels about you today. So let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll release you to your campuses to celebrate communion. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the table, I want to pray for those today who, who perhaps have been treated badly by people in their lives, people who should have loved them, people who represent you. Lord, I pray that you might assure them today that you love them and you want to be with them. Lord, I pray for those who've experienced some really tough things in life and maybe are in the middle of them right now, wondering how you feel about them. May they know that you are still with them, you are still for them, you can and will see them through. And Lord, I pray for those of us, all of us, who have done or failed to do things that weigh heavily on our heart, even today. May we know and receive your forgiveness today, your love and your freedom to head back out into the world in partnership with you and your people. May you meet us here today in these moments at the table. In Jesus' name, amen.